Hello, and welcome back to the Savvy Psychologist podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and every week I'll help you meet life's challenges with evidence-based research, a sympathetic ear, and zero judgment. Self-harm is one of the last shameful topics. Today, folks take a proud stand against being fat-shamed or slut-shamed, but it's a rare individual who will stand up and disclose his or her own self-injury. But self-harm is a surprisingly widespread phenomenon that affects youth and adults, men and women. So this week, we'll cover four reasons individuals harm themselves and four ways to stop. So self-harm is far more widespread than you might suspect. A 2012 review of 52 different self-injury studies from around the world found that around 18% of individuals had cut or otherwise deliberately injured themselves in their lifetime. That's almost one in five. Now, cutting often begins in the teenage years, on average between the ages of 12 and 14. And in the U.S., more than 7% of teenagers have cut, burned, or deliberately injured themselves in the past year alone. Now, the technical term for cutting is non-suicidal self-injury, and it's defined as the deliberate, self-inflicted destruction of body tissue. And there are two caveats. One, cutters are not trying to kill themselves. On the contrary, they often do it to feel alive rather than numbed. And two, it's for, quote, purposes not socially sanctioned. So your daughter piercing her nose or belly button doesn't count, no matter how you feel about it. But cutting, burning, carving words or symbols into their skin, painful hair pulling, or literally banging one's head against the wall all count as methods of self-harm. So what is going on? To the outsider, it may seem incomprehensible or even crazy, but if you go with the truism that each person copes as best they can with the resources they have at the time, it gets a little more understandable. With that, here are four reasons individuals self-injure. Reason number one, physical pain diffuses negative emotion. The physical pain not only takes away emotional pain, it also creates a sense of calm and relief. And because it works almost instantly, cutting is highly reinforcing. Some even say addictive. And cutters describe the sensation as an escape or a release of pressure. But eventually, the brain starts to connect the relief from emotional pain with the cutting, which creates a strong association, even a craving, that can be hard to resist. And while the average individual who self-injures does so for two to four years, many continue on well beyond that time frame. Reason number two. Folks who self-injure are really hard on themselves. A 2014 study asked college students who cut themselves, plus a control group of students who didn't, to keep a daily diary of their emotions for two weeks. The biggest difference between those who cut and those who didn't? Students who cut reported feeling dissatisfied with themselves much more often, and that dissatisfaction manifested as harsh self-criticism. Indeed, folks who cut sometimes carve their criticisms into their own skin, like fat, stupid, or failure. Reason number three, it can be a way to feel. In particular, individuals with a trauma history may self-harm to feel something other than numbness and to take control of their own pain. And reason number four, 
it's an alternative way to feel negative emotion. So kids raised in a household where sadness, hurt, or disappointment get invalidated or mocked quickly learn it's not okay to feel bad. So cutting becomes a, quote, acceptable way to feel pain. If they're not allowed to feel it emotionally, they'll let it out physically. So in short, think of cutting and self-harm as any other unhealthy coping mechanism, like getting drunk, binge eating, or getting high. It's a way to feel something other than what you're feeling. Plus, if you perceive you're not measuring up and criticize yourself mercilessly, it can even seem like a worthy punishment. Now, it goes without saying that cutting is dangerous. It's all too easy to cut too deeply, even when suicide is not the intent. And individuals who cut know it's unhealthy. They go to great lengths to hide their behavior, not to mention their scars. So, how to stop? Well, in a 2015 study, researchers asked former cutters why they stopped. And there were many, many answers, but there were three big themes. First, almost 40% talked about self-awareness. So those who came to realize they could handle feeling bad for a while, or that they would probably feel better soon, often stopped cutting. Nearly a quarter, 24%, stopped because they felt someone loved them or cared for them. They may have entered a loving relationship, or their friends made them feel worthy and cared for. And 27%, simply said they grew out of it. But if those things don't come into your life, what are some concrete methods to stop? Well, first, it's important to match the solution with the reason for cutting. So for example, if cutting is a way to feel deep, dark emotions, experiment with ways to feel those emotions safely. You could listen to music that allows you to feel what you feel, have a good cry, or write out your thoughts in a journal even if you just write page after page of profanity in big black letters. Or, if cutting is a way to release tension, move your body, visit a boxing gym, or go for a long, pounding run. Now, if channeling your pain into another activity doesn't work, you can try to simulate cutting. It won't be as satisfying, but it's safer. You can squeeze ice until your hands hurt, or draw on your skin with a red marker instead of cutting it. And finally, you can try waiting it out. It'll be excruciating, especially at first, but the urge will pass. Promise yourself or someone who loves you that you'll wait 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or however long you agree on. To wrap up, cutting can be a hard habit to break. That harsh inner critic is a voice not easily silenced. It takes time and courage, but know that that inner critic can slowly be edged out by something you didn't even know you had, inner strength. If the savvy psychologist makes your life happier or healthier, let me know by liking on Facebook, subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, or subscribing to the bi-weekly newsletter at quickanddirtytips.com slash newsletters. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and a transcript of the episode and references for all the studies I mention are always available on quickanddirtytips.com slash savvy hyphen psychologist. And of course, the savvy psychologist is strictly for informational purposes and doesn't substitute for mental health care from a licensed professional. But thank you again, and I'll see you next week for a happier, healthier mind.
Are you tired of the constant battle with anxiety and panic? I've got a podcast that I think you'll love. It's called the Anxiety Coaches Podcast, where the host, Gina, gives you your weekly dose of tranquility and inspiration. Two new episodes drop weekly, packed with practical tips and lifestyle changes to help you calm that racing heart and bring peace back into your life. So if you're ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and constant worry, tune into the Anxiety Coaches podcast and embark on a journey towards lasting calmness and a life free from anxiety's grip. Remember, it's not just a podcast, it's a lifeline. Join Gina on the Anxiety Coaches podcast and let her soothing words be the balm your nervous system needs. Listen in and start your path to healing today. The Anxiety Coaches Podcast.com because healing begins the first time you listen.